It's good to see each of you here this afternoon. We're grateful for your presence. We had a great lunch together, and we appreciate those of you that prepared food and brought it. I know that everyone got plenty to eat, and for that we're very grateful. We've had a great day thus far. Brother Alan Harris has done a tremendous job today pre presenting the gospel of Christ, and we are very glad to have him with us. And I don't know if you were here in the earlier well, the earlier services, but Brother Harris made mention of the fact that he had difficulty following my directions. <clears throat> well, Brother Richard came to me after services this morning and said, what directions did you give him? <clears throat> well, I know I don't get an endorsement from Brother Harris in terms of giving directions. And Nancy will always say, what would you do without me when we're driving somewhere? I may not know directions, but I do know good preaching. And we've had great preaching today. And we appreciate Brother Harris being with us, and we're so grateful that you're here. We have a lot of, a lot of visitors, a lot of friends of Brother Harris, and we're, we're glad, we're grateful that you have chosen to come and to be with us today. Someone has asked me if we are taping the lessons, and we always tape the lessons. We also post them on the website. And I want to encourage you to go to the website. You can download those. Or if you like, we can get you a copy of the CD. Uh, we usually have those printed. Jared usually prints them uh, the first part of the week, so we'll have those available to you. And so at this time, we want to present Brother Alan Hires. We appreciate him coming to be with us today. Certainly it's good to be with you. I've enjoyed the day. We had a fine lunch together. And uh, the only bad thing about that good lunch that uh, Mike spoke about is it's 1 o'clock. Nice and comfortable, big lunch. I know I have my work cut out for me. I want you to try to stay with me. I appreciate Mike Hickson. I appreciate the work he's doing here. I appreciate the church at Olive Branch. I've known about the work here for a long time, but I have not been here before, and so it's been a delight for me to come and to be with you today. And so wonderful, of course, to see so many friends that I have known in years past. I've had a number of people come up and tell me, you baptized me. Several have come up to me and reminded me that I performed their marriage ceremony. So I've been around for a few years. And uh, Leah Seegers led our prayer a few minutes ago. Now his father, I believe, is going to preach tomorrow night. I've known him for a long time, but here I go again, giving away my youth, but I knew Lee's grandfather, <laughs> Brother Leo Seegers, fine man, elder in the church in Amory, Mississippi. And uh, I still have friends down in that part of the world. In fact, I just feel like everywhere there are members of the church, I have friends, and I enjoy it so much and so good to be with all of you and to see all of you and have this opportunity. I've known some of the great preachers in the church over years past. When I was only about 16 years old, I heard Brother G.C. Brewer and I thought Brother Brewer was one of the greatest men in the pulpit I ever heard. And I have a book that he autographed for me and I heard Brother Hardiman, N.B. Hardiman, and Foy E. Wallace, Jr. At one time, probably during the late 1940s, early 1950s, those men were the three best-known preachers in the Brotherhood. G.C. Brewer, N.B. Hardiman, Foy E. Wallace, Jr. And even though they were all in their later years when I heard them, I had the opportunity to know all three of those men and to hear all of them, and they were all great. And yet, here's the interesting thing about them, they were all different. They didn't copy one another, they weren't like one another, they did not have the same style, they did not preach in the same way, and yet they were all very great preachers. And I'll tell you a little story or two about these old time preachers. Foy E. Wallace preached the longest sermon 
I have ever listened to. I went to the old Mclemore congregation in Memphis years ago when Brother Wallace was there in a meeting. And they had requested for him to speak on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people had questions about the Holy Spirit and Brother Wallace never used a note or anything. He knew the subject so well. So he delivered a lesson the night that I went to hear him on the subject of the Holy Spirit. He stepped into the pulpit at 7.45. Service started at 7.30. We had songs and a prayer. Brother Wallace got up to speak at 7.45. At 10.45, he offered the invitation. He actually spoke for three hours on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And yet, it was very interesting. That's the wonderful thing about it. He was such a strong man in the Bible and the scriptures, it was just marvelous to hear him. And then Brother N.B. Hardiman, probably we've never had a preacher that had a better command of the English language than Brother Hardiman. I remember my father telling me when I was just a young boy. He had heard Brother Hardiman. He said, you know, Brother Hardiman could say the same thing as somebody else, but he would always say it in a little different way. And it got your attention and you listened to what he had to say. And I remember my father telling me that this is not uncommon now. But he said, at one time, everybody would say eternal life or everlasting life. Brother Hardiman would say, life eternal, life everlasting. Man in whose nostrils was the breath of life. He just had a unique way of expressing himself. And I remember uh, Brother Hardiman came to Getwell a number of times when I was preaching there. Mind you, I was in my 20s. And I look out in the audience and there is the man that a lot of people call the Prince of Preachers. N.B. Hardiman and his wife, they'd come in. They liked to come to get well. And uh, I'd look out there, get up to preach. There's that N.B. Hardiman. Now, that's really an experience. As a matter of fact, I had a friend, uh, Jack Exum, who preached for a small church down in Georgia. And Jack was named after Brother Hardiman. His middle name was Hardiman, Jack Hardiman Exum. He said he got up to preach one Sunday and looked out, and there sat N.B. Hardiman. And... Uh, while they were singing, he, he walked back there and said, Brother Hardiman, would you preach for us? And he said, no, I just came to hear you. I'm on the way home from a gospel meeting. Brother Hardiman, he said, won't you please preach for us? <laughs> Brother Hardiman said, well, no, said, I, I just, I, I wanted to come by and hear you, you know. Jack was named after him. Jack said, Brother Hardiman, he said, if you won't preach, would you mind leaving so I could preach? <laughs> and he said, with that, Brother Hardiman got up and preached. But I spoke a number of times with N.B. Hardiman in the audience. One time he led a prayer at Getwell. I wish I had that prayer recorded. I wish I could remember all that Brother Hardiman said. But I just want to show you how he didn't use big words, but he knew how to express his thoughts in a fresh way. And I remember where most of us would say, we're thankful for this land in which we dwell, or we're thankful for the world in which we live, something of that kind. Brother Hardiman, I recall this expression, said, we are thankful for the ground that is pressed by our feet. And I thought, you know, there's not anything complicated about that, but it was just a little different way of expressing a thought. And Brother Hardiman was that way in his preaching. By the way, I mentioned that he came a number of times to get well when I was there, and I see him in the audience, and it always made me a little bit nervous. But I want to say this about Brother Hardiman. I don't ever remember N.B. Hardiman coming to get well and being in the audience when I preached, and here I was, a young man in my 20s, that I didn't get a handwritten letter the next week thanking me for the lesson and saying how much he enjoyed it. I mentioned that I was uh, 16 the first time I heard G.C. Brewer. Now here's what I have to tell you about Brother Brewer for you to get this picture in your mind. 
Brother Brewer had the deepest voice I ever heard on a human being. I mean, when Brother Brewer spoke, it was just like the rafters up there would shake, vibrate. And I have a deep voice. In fact, it's hard for me to disguise my voice. People that I haven't seen in years and years and years, if they say, hear me say, hello, they say, you're Alan Hires. So I know I have a distinctive voice, but let me tell you, Brother Brewer had a voice way down here like this. And oh, he was a powerful preacher. Well, when I was in high school, Brother Brewer's daughter told me that her father was coming through town on his way to Marlton, Arkansas to speak on a lectureship. And he would like somebody to ride with him in the car. And would I like to go with him? Oh my, I was thrilled out of my boots. And so I rode from Searcy, where I was in high school at that time, over to Marlton, Arkansas with Brother G.C. Brewer. And I heard him preach that night. I sat right up on the front row. And I want to tell you that he preached for an hour and 20 minutes. And I never moved a muscle. And neither did anybody else in that audience because he held everybody spellbound. And so we got in the car, driving back to Searcy, and Brother Brewer said, uh, would you like to stop and get a milkshake? Well, I thought so much of Brother Brewer if he'd said, would you like to drive off in a ditch? I would have said, yes, sir. <laughs> so we stopped to get a milkshake, and I remember Brother Brewer had on this beautiful navy blue suit, and they brought a milkshake. We were sitting up at the counter, and I reached over here to get a napkin or a straw or something, and I accidentally hit my milkshake and turned it over and it went on Brother Brewer's beautiful navy blue suit. And I held him in such high regard, I was mortified. But I can tell you this, he never forgot me. <laughs> <laughs> and I have two books in my library that were given to me by Sister G.C. Brewer after he died because she knew how much I loved him. And I also have a book of his that he autographed for me. So I look back on the experiences that I've had with some of the greatest preachers in the church, Brother Wallace, Brother Hardiman, Brother Brewer, and then one generation just beyond that, there were men like Brother G.K. Wallace, and Brother Gus Nichols, and Brother Guy in Woods. These are the kind of people that have influenced me. And you know, we are the product of our influences. And so I think it is good that we know people like this and that we've been influenced by them. And I know that I bring some of that wherever I am. The influences that I've had that have been exerted upon me by others back through the years. Nine o'clock this morning, I talked about the Protestant Reformation. Tried to give a lot of history, showed some pictures, told about how that Luther rebelled against Catholicism, and that was the beginning of what we know today as denominationalism. And one thing I was trying to emphasize there, and that I hope all of us remember, is that denominationalism, such as we know it today, is a matter that is of fairly recent origin. Other than Catholicism, Greek Orthodox Church, maybe some other influences out there, for the most part, the denominations that are all around us today are all less than 500 years old. And yet you've got people that are members of churches out here that have no idea about the history of their church. They don't know how they began, they don't know who started them, they, many times do not even know the doctrine of their church. In fact, uh, I read not long ago about somebody that was a member of one denomination and he moved across town and there was another denomination nearby. He just went down and joined them. And the one he was a member of to begin with taught things that were entirely different from the one that he joined in the second place. He didn't know the difference. He just went to church here and then he went to church at the other one. He didn't know anything about what they taught. He didn't understand anything about their doctrine. And so one thing that I'm trying to do when I talk about the church is to help us understand about 
what all of these different religious bodies mean and how that we don't have to be a part of that, that we can just be New Testament Christians. We can be members of the body of Christ. And that is a lot of what I've tried to emphasize in our study today. And what I want to do in this afternoon session, I want to outline church history for you. I want to tell you that there basically are five periods of church history. And I'm going to outline the five periods of church history in our study. Of course, we can only refer to them in a very brief way. But I hope that each of you will remember these five periods. Because I think if you do, it's going to give you a better grasp of the New Testament church. And that's what we really want to remember. Now here are the five periods. I'm going to name them. Then we're going to briefly discuss them in our study. The first period of church history is the New Testament period when the church was established in the beginning. Secondly is the great apostasy or the falling away from the church as God gave it. The third period of church history is known as the Dark Ages. That is when the apostasy flourished and grew and so many changes were made. The fourth period of church history is the one I spoke about earlier today, and that is the Protestant Reformation. After you have the great apostasy or the falling away and you have the period of the dark ages during which that flourished, then you had a reaction to it. And that was known as the Reformation. And the last of the five periods of church history that I want to mention to you is known as the Restoration. Now let's briefly try to understand what those five periods mean. I want to start out with the first of these, which is the New Testament period. In our study a little earlier today, we talked about how the church was in the mind of God. Way back in Isaiah's time, 700 years before the coming of Christ, it said in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the hills. All nations shall flow unto it and the word of the Lord will go forth from Zion or from Jerusalem. We trace that forward in the New Testament and saw how it was fulfilled in the second chapter of the book of Acts when the church came into existence with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous manifestations on that day. Matthew 16 and verse 18, our Lord, it is said, came into the coast or the parts of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said, but whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So here's our Lord during his personal ministry saying, I will build my church. In Mark chapter nine and verse one, Jesus said, there be some standing by here who shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom come with power. You know, we have people around today who still don't think the kingdom has come. They think the kingdom is somewhere future down the line. Our Lord said, there are some standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom come with power. I remember hearing Brother Brewer one time, he said when he was a boy, 
He always heard these preachers say, the kingdom is future, the kingdom is yet to come. And he said he read that verse, there be some standing by here who shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom. And he said he decided that somebody back then had to still be living. And he said in his mind as a boy, he just concocted the idea that it must be the apostle John. And he was curious where John might be. And he said he saw an old fellow one day with long gray whiskers and hobbling around, you know, and he thought to himself, there's John. He said the old fellow spit out of water to back and he said, no, that's not John. <laughs> but our Lord did say there would be some standing there who would not taste of death till they saw the kingdom come with power. That doesn't mean that somebody's still alive. What it means is the kingdom came in the lifetime of those individuals. And if you notice that verse in Mark 9, 1, he said the kingdom will come with power. In Acts 1 and verse 8, it is said, ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So watch that. The kingdom is to come with power. The power is to come with the Holy Spirit. Now you turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts and start at verse one. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all gathered together in one place and with one accord. They heard a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind filled all the house where they were sitting. Cloven tongues like as of fire sat upon each one of them and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The conclusion is irresistible. The kingdom would come with power. The power would come with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, the kingdom was established on the first Pentecost day after the resurrection of the Son of God. The Bible is such a fascinating book. And one interesting thing about the study of the Bible is Everything you find in the Bible just fits together, hand and glove. And you read these verses and how they go wonderfully together to show the establishment of the kingdom. I remember I used to read those genealogies over there like in Matthew and Luke where it said this one begat that one, this one begat another one. One fellow didn't understand that. He thought it said that uh, Adam forgot Seth and so on. But at any rate, I remember I used to read those and I'd wonder, why is that in the Bible? What does that accomplish? And I remember the brother J.W. McGarvey, one of the best scholars that ever lived, said, there is no verse in the Bible by accident. Everything that is in the word of God has a purpose. If we don't understand it, we may not know the purpose, but he said there is a reason for everything that God has put in there. You know, I've been studying some subjects at times where that if I did not have the genealogies back in Matthew and Luke, I could not have understood what those passages meant. But it might have taken me years to get to the point where I saw the importance of that and understanding what had been revealed to us in these verses. So it is that everything that God has put in his word is there for a purpose. And there was a purpose in saying the kingdom will come with power. There was a purpose in saying you should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There is a purpose in saying that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descended upon them and they spake with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Because when you tie those together, it is clear here is the coming of the kingdom or the church of the Lord. And so you read about the establishment of the church in the first century. And the church grew. In Acts 2 and verse 41, it is said there were 3,000 that obeyed the gospel on the first day. Over to uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, and uh, you read that believers were the more added to the Lord. Go over to Acts chapter 5 and verse 6, and you read how that a great company of priests was obedient unto the faith. And so you have some scholars that say there were probably 25,000 members of the church in Jerusalem back in those early days. 
And then you get over to Acts 8 and they're scattered abroad by persecution. And so all of those people that were in Jerusalem to begin with now go out everywhere preaching the word and the gospel is spread and the church is growing. And Colossians 1 and verse 23 says that the gospel was carried to every creature under the sun. But now then, watch what happens. There is a prophecy that men are going to fall away from what God gave. First Timothy chapter four and verse one. Paul said, the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times or the last days some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath given to be received uh, with thanksgiving to those that know and love the truth. Go over to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, for there are many false prophets gone out into the world. Try the spirits, whether they are of God. Many prophetic utterances that are given in the word of God that even though the church began, even though it was given by God, even though it was constituted by power from the Holy Spirit, there would come a time that men would slip away from God's original plan. There is no clearer statement about that falling away than what is found in the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. People in Thessalonica got the idea that Jesus was coming back right away. In the first Thessalonian letter, Paul had written to them saying that Jesus would return, the trump of God, the dead will arise. They thought that meant soon, right away. So when Paul wrote the second Thessalonian letter, he said, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. They thought, oh, he's coming back right away. So the second Thessalonian letter, Paul writes to them and he said, no, don't get the idea he's coming back right away, that his coming is at hand, because he said there's something else that has to occur before Jesus comes again. What was it? Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, that is the day of the coming of the Lord, that day shall not come except there be a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Now, now what is Paul saying here? He's saying some of you have the idea Jesus is gonna come back right away. He said, no, no, no. He's not coming back right away because something else has to occur first. Well, Paul, what is it? There's going to be a falling away there's going to be a man of sin revealed, a son of perdition that holds himself out as though he were God. And all of that has to occur before our Lord comes again. Now, look at church history, what happened? Well, in the early church, you had a congregation like this overseen by elders. Notice I use the plural there, elders. There is no record or account in the New Testament of any congregation ever being overseen 
no one ever. Plural. Two or more. But what happened in church history is this. As time went by, don't your elders have different talents? One of them may be a good teacher, one may be a good song leader, one may have this talent, one may have some other talent. As time went by in the early church, one elder in a congregation somehow became preeminent. And over a period of time, the situation developed so that a congregation was being overseen by one elder. Then maybe you had a number of churches out here in the area, what we would say out in the county, that didn't have any elders, and they said, would you mind sort of overseeing our work, helping us? So you first went from New Testament, a plurality of elders over a congregation, to one elder over a congregation, to one elder now over three or four. It eventually developed into five areas. Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Constantinople, and Rome. They were called the five metropolitans. And there was a bishop in each one of those five places and they had under them all of the other bishops and oversaw all of the other churches. Five areas now where they have assumed control over everybody. This is all historical fact, not my history. It's just historical fact. And finally it came down to two out of those five and they were rivals. Here is Constantinople and the bishop over there said, I'm the top bishop and here's Rome over here and the bishop over there said, I am the top bishop. And they vied back and forth until finally in 606, A.D., the emperor of Rome designated Boniface III as the universal bishop over all the church. That really is the first actual pope in church history. Now, what was said back here in 2 Thessalonians 2 Christ is not coming back right away. There has to be something else that occurs first. What is it? There's going to be a falling away. Man of sin, son of perdition revealed. Sitting in the temple of God. Temple of God is a church, so it's a religious leader. Sitting in the temple of God, holding himself forth as though he were God. Look how long it took to develop. 500 years. Brethren, that's why that I sometimes caution congregations, be careful. Don't start some little practice out here for which you do not have any biblical authority. It may seem small at the beginning, but that's what happened in the early church. A little change here, a little change there. Until over a period of time, it took 500 years to reach the point that the man of sin was revealed where that he claimed to be over the entire church. He designated himself as the universal bishop, the bishop over all the church, and later was called the pope, which is Italian papa, the father. He's the father over all of the church. That was a matter of biblical prophecy. So you go out of the New Testament period into the period of the great apostasy where you have a corruption of the government that God gave to the church, congregational in form, elders over a congregation. Now then you have a universal bishop claiming to be over the entire church. The development of the papacy. And so from the New Testament period into the great apostasy, falling away, you know, we might lose our faith if that had not been prophesied. We might say, well, the church is supposed to be divine. Christ said, I will build my church. And yet here the church fell away. We might be disappointed about that, but for one fact, 
and that is God told us it was going to happen. So it was no surprise. It was no violation of what God anticipated. God said, time will come, men will not endure sound doctrine. Bible said, men shall fall away from the faith. Man of sin, son of perdition will be revealed. So everything that happened was something that God told us in advance. Here's what's going to happen. Man fell away from God's original plan. Then you go into that third period that I've described as the Dark Ages. And they're called the Dark Ages because to a large extent, the Bible was shielded from the people. The Bible was only written in Latin, was only read by the priests, by the scholars, doctors of the church. Many changes were made. You went from baptizing believers in Christ to baptizing infants. By the way, here's something that was interesting to me about church history. I would have never thought about it. I thought sprinkling would have come first and then babies. It was the other way around. When they first started baptizing babies, they immersed them. They plunged them under the water. It was only later that sprinkling came in. So you have infant baptism, then you have sprinkling, then you have holy water, the sign of the cross, then you have the crucifix hanging uh, up in the building, uh, people kneeling down before that, making the sign of the cross. Then you have the simplicity of the Lord's Supper where we partake of the uh, unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine as a memorial to the death of our Lord and transubstantiation, which is still practiced in Catholicism, says that the bread and the wine are changed into the literal body, flesh, blood, bones, muscle, and sinew of Christ. And that when people take of that little wafer, they are eating the literal body of Christ. That's the doctrine called transubstantiation. And if you've ever been to a Catholic mass, you may not have known what the purpose of it was, but the purpose of the Catholic mass is to go through the ceremony that allegedly changes bread and fruit of the vine into literal flesh and blood. And when the priest stands there before that crucifix and makes the sign of the cross and says, hoc est meum corpus, this is my body he is alleging to change the elements of the Lord's Supper into the literal body and blood of the Lord. That is the doctrine called transubstantiation. Still an integral part of Catholicism today. So during the Dark Ages, you have all of these changes that transpire. And there was a lot of um, mystery and a lot of superstition. Like uh, they would claim this little splinter right here is a fragment of the cross. And people would kneel down before it and kiss the little box it was in or something. I've been told that there were enough fragments of the cross to make 300 crosses. I read about one fellow that uh, made a trip over there into Italy one year and he went into a little church and they showed him a skull and they told him that was the skull of John the Baptist. And it was a relic that they kept there in that church. Well, he went on from that little town, he got to Rome, he went to another church, and they showed him a skull, and they said, this is the skull of John the Baptist. He said, wait a minute. I just saw that when I visited the cathedral over here at this other place. And the priest thought about it a minute, he said, well, that was his skull when he was a little boy. <laughs> But I'm giving that just to show what occurred during the Dark Ages. There were all these changes that transpired, and finally, the situation got so bad that we get to that period that I talked about at our first service today, where that Martin Luther just rose up in rebellion against it. He said, this is not right. Catholic Church has become corrupt. He said, there are so many abuses out here that need to be corrected, and he rebelled against all of this and wrote out those 95 theses and nailed them to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that started the next period of church history, the Protestant Reformation. 
So what do you have in church history? First, you have the New Testament period. Secondly, you have the great apostasy or falling away. Third, you have the dark ages during which all these changes transpired. Fourth, then, you have the rebellion against all of those changes by Luther and then by others where they rose up in rebellion against that and admonished people, this is not right, this is a violation of what the scriptures say. And they started what was known as the protests or the Protestant reforms or reformation in which they tried to correct the abuses that were found in Catholicism. But instead of correcting the abuses, Catholic Church, of course, fought back. Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door in 1517, and by 1521, they read him out of the church. They excommunicated him. And Luther burned the edict of excommunication that the Pope had sent out about him. And I showed a picture of where that occurred earlier at what's called Luther's Oak in Wittenberg, Germany. And so what came of that, when they could not reform Catholicism, when they could not correct the abuses that had developed, they began to establish new churches. And so Luther established the Lutheran church. And one of the pleas that Luther made, and I have it in writing, Luther said, do not call yourselves Lutherans. But his words were not heeded. And after Luther, there were others. There was John Calvin, I mentioned earlier today, started Presbyterianism, the doctrine of Calvinism. Uh, that was adopted by others besides the church established by Calvin. Then you had Henry VIII come along. He wanted to marry someone else. Pope would not give him permission, so he pulled away from the Catholic Church in order to marry again. He eventually beheaded that wife. He was married six times. He's the founder of the Church of England. John Wesley was a member of the Church of England his whole life. Died a member of the Church of England. Never left it. But he's credited with being the founder of Methodism and many of the Pentecostal faiths. You see what happened though? New Testament church falling away. Dark ages. Reformation. Establishment of all these different churches that we still see around us today. And that brings us to the fifth period of church history. And probably the one that is the least known. Luther wanted to reform. Luther wanted to correct all these things that were wrong in Catholicism, even though it eventually resulted in the establishment of the Lutheran church and other churches and denominations. But there came a time when men looked at this situation. And like Luther, they said, this is not right. Luther said that about Catholicism, this is not right. But others said that about what resulted from the Reformation. All of these divisions, all of these different churches, all of these different creeds, all of these different names, they looked at that situation and said, this is not and what they remembered was that first period I talked about a moment ago, the New Testament period. Upon this rock I will build my church. And their solution was, instead of starting another denomination, instead of founding another church, and look at the names of these churches. Should that not tell us something? Acts 11 and verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. What are people called today? So many different names. So the time came that people said, 
We don't need to reform Catholicism. We don't even need to reform what has happened in Protestantism. What we need is to go all the way back beyond the Protestant Reformation, beyond the Dark Ages, beyond the Great Apostasy, all the way back to the beginning. And let us become what they were. No more, no less. Just simple New Testament Christians without a sectarian name, without a human creed, without a humanly devised and established body, Let's go back to the beginning and be just what they were. I admit to you that even those of us at Churches of Christ have not always been very articulate in explaining that plea. I agree that we have sometimes left a wrong impression with people. I acknowledge that we have not always been plain and clear in what it is that we are striving to do. But I'm here to say today that the plea of Churches of Christ, the appeal that we offer to the world, to me it's the most thrilling plea in the religious world. Nothing like it. Our plea is Let's go back to the beginning, not to reform the errors and the corruptions and the abuses that have transpired. Let us go back to the beginning and watch this word, restore first century New Testament Christianity. That's our plan. You know what it means to restore an antique automobile? You try to go back and make it like it was at the beginning. You know what it is like to restore a piece of furniture, an antique chair, or something of that kind? I admire people who can do that. I've seen the handiwork of people that can restore antique furniture and it's just gorgeous, beautiful. And they put the wood in there and they know how to apply the varnish or whatever it is they put on it. But it's a restoration bringing it back to its original condition. That's what this word means in church history. Restoration, not reformation. Reformation resulted in all of these denominations. Restoration is to reach back beyond the denominations, beyond the apostasy, all the way back to the very beginning and to restore New Testament Christianity. That is, make it like the original. And that's what churches of Christ are trying to do. Why do we have elders, plural, in churches of Christ? Restoration. Why do we have baptism by immersion? Restoration. Why do we differ with almost all the religious world out there by saying that baptism is essential to the forgiveness or remission of sins? Restoration. Why is this probably the only congregation you can enter in Olive Branch, Mississippi?
But I'm going to tell you what it really is. Restoration. If we're going to be serious about restoration, we're going to, have to be serious about restoration. And you can read that Bible all the way through and not find where any New Testament church ever had instrumental music. I'm like that old brother I heard one time. He said, I believe the Bible from kiver to kiver. Generology to revolution. <laughs> he said, I even believe the kiver. It says Holy Bible. And I'm pretty much the same way he is. Look at the word of God. Look at book, chapter, and verse. Look at the New Testament church. Look at what existed in the first century and ask yourself, where can I find that church? That's what we're looking at and that's what we're looking for. I invite your study and your attention to it and I muster all these remarks to a close. You have been a wonderful audience. I appreciate all the young people seated up here near the front and let me say to their parents and grandparents, they've all been well behaved. <laughs> they've all listened and they've been respectful and attentive and all of you have. This has been such a splendid audience. I want you to think about these principles I've talked about today. I'm not here just to criticize or pick somebody apart or anything of that kind. I'm trying to establish here some principles that I think are vital. And I want you to think about them when you go home and maybe throughout the remainder of your life. These are really important concepts. And I want you to understand that we're not asking you to join any denomination. But I think we have every right to ask you to obey the gospel, to be added to the church, to be a New Testament Christian without addition, without subtraction, and without modification. And if you're here today and would like to respond during this meeting, we're going to sing a song and invite you to do that. But even if you have questions you'd like to talk to Brother Mike or some others about at a later time, I hope you'll do that. But if you need to come and know you need to come and want to come now, why don't you do it while we stand to sing?